Hello, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga. Alpha Bunga Bunga is myself, Alex Ohili, Philip Cunliffe, and George Hoare, and today it's just me and Phil, and we're talking about global cities. Now you can probably imagine what the main components are of your archetypal global city today. Big glass and steel banking headquarters, swanky new high-rise flats that you reckon are probably quite empty, a gay village, hipster cafes with creatives typing away on their MacBooks, maybe some anti-terror barricades on the main shopping street, and most likely a modern art museum probably housed in, an, in a sort of former factory. But why do cities look this way? Why do global cities look the way they do? Our guest today is Richard Williams. He's professor of contemporary visual cultures at the University of Edinburgh. And he's tasked himself with answering that question in a new book, Why Do Cities Look the Way They Do? And he's looking specifically at global cities, which are one of those products of globalization and arguably of the end of history. So today we're going to be talking about visuals and experience, which is something that we don't often do and maybe we should do more of. But what we do on here is talk about processes. Normally we talk about historical and political ones. But Richard's book is all about processes as well, specifically about how cities come to be the way they are. Just before we go over to Richard, I just wanted to say that we've included images of the buildings that we'll discuss here, and I've included that for our patrons. So if that interests you, that's all available at patreon.com slash bungacast. Subscribers there get two original episodes per month, as well as the two free ones we put out to the general public every month, and this is one of those free ones that you're hearing now. Okay, here are myself and Phil talking to Richard. So, hi, Richard. Thank you for joining us. And uh, what city are you calling us from today? Right. Well, hi, hi, Alex. It's a real, real pleasure to be uh, to be here. Um, I am speaking from Edinburgh, which is, uh, if you don't know it, it's the capital of Scotland. And it's a small city in the damp northwestern corner of Europe. Um, and it has still the world's largest arts festival. So it's, uh, in, in some ways, it's a small city, but it, it's... Uh, at least for one month of the year, it's a global city. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's its big claim to to globalness. And we're going to be talking a lot about mm. globalness in in just a second. Uh, I wanted to, I guess, debate a little bit about the book for for uh, listeners. I think the book I really enjoyed reading it, and I think it makes great links between different mediums and areas of existence, kind of trying to integrate these things. Um, so both the way that cities are viewed and the media which depicts cities as well as the actual experience of them um, and the built environment. So uh, like the transience of the creative city in, in one chapter, like Los Angeles, uh, is found for you in both the screenwriters' work processes and where they do their work, you know, like in a cafe, for example, um, as well as the city's depiction in film or TV, uh, as well as more obviously, I guess, in architectural projects and city plans. Um, so one bit that I liked is that uh, Seinfeld, despite being about New York, it's filmed in L.A. And, and you find it to be kind of an ironic allegory of L.A., flat, horizontally integrated, insecure, constantly in motion, physically and ethically centerless, uh, which I enjoyed. That, that's one for the, for the Seinfeld fans out there, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of cities, uh, the discussion of cities is, is you know, what cities do, um, but global cities... Uh, this kind of, you know, perhaps embodied by places like Singapore or London or New York, uh, are full of iconic architecture and are endlessly photographed, as you say, like we're all urban photographers today. Um, they all want to transmit this image of globalness more than anything specific about them. So I guess to start off, and it's maybe a bit of an awkward question, but have cities become too self-conscious? 
um, well, I, 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 in a way, it's not for me to say whether they've become too self-conscious or, or not. I mean, uh, on a personal level, yes, probably. But they, it just seems to be um, a fact of life. It seems to be part of the um, the, the process of, of uh, um, the way capital circulates at the moment, that there's been this tendency to... Um, produce uh, images um, you know there's this great exacerbation of images and it, it's um I've been fascinated by it partly because I've, I've you know like you I've you know I've read lots of um, interesting people who've, who've written about the spectacularization of cities and all, all of that but it, it's also a, a process that I've, I've lived through in, in in my lifetime I mean I'm I'm um, in my early 50s now I, I, I grew up in the um, really, in, in the 1970s, which was a, it feels like an entirely different uh, you know, country or an entirely different planet, or, or almost when um, certainly the city that I was living in then, Ma- Manchester, was was possibly the the least spectacular um, place you you could imagine. It, it was a place that that almost um, defied being looked at, and and so my my experience of cities growing up as a child was were, were cities. That, that really didn't want to be looked at, you know, didn't want to be spectacular, were, were, didn't have any of that that um, image-making or, uh, or image-desiring quality about them. And then suddenly, you know, 20 years after that, it, the, the cities became all about images. And, and so that, that, that's been just, just fascinating to watch. I mean, I, I think uh, there probably is now a, uh, likely to be a trend in the opposite direction, and and certainly that would be good from the point of view of architecture because the the, the way the way uh, uh, architecture has been taught and the way it's become fixated on on um, images I, I think has uh, has not been um, helpful in terms of producing good living environments. Um, but yeah, I mean there there we are. I mean what what I was trying to do in the book was was um, uh, was draw attention to this 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 process. Um, you know, has it gone too far? Yeah, yes, probably, but it probably will will flip back into something else. Yeah, and uh, the way that you, you explore this, I guess, on like six axes, uh, which is mm. a useful way of, of dividing things up. Um, as you acknowledge, it's probably all the important ones, uh, but maybe not exhaustive. Uh, those six processes are money, political power, sexual desire, labor, military action, and the industrialization of culture. And mm. and those are also, I mean, the way that I, I've i laid them out there, which I've taken actually not from your introduction, but from your conclusion, mm. um, are yep. ways of framing it which are specific to the city today, especially the global city. Um, but before we do that, Phil has a question. Yeah, hi, Richard. Um, hi, Phil. I wanted to, so in addition to images, one of the core kind of conceits of the book is this idea of understanding cities as processes Mm. and you set it up in terms of um, the counterintuitive claim that we're very used to thinking of cities in tangible ways it's uh, there lots of big buildings kind of concentrated together and Mm. we therefore think of them as something with kind of solidity stability Mm. and centered around our the images we carry in our heads of um iconic buildings like you say and in contrast to all that you make the case for processes for um dynamic processes as being the characteristic of cities but i suppose uh to kind of so i guess i wanted to ask you if you could um talk a bit more about what that means but also to what is it why is it specifically cities that need us to think of them 
in terms of processes. I mean, because you could say it about anything in principle, you know, mm. you could say the same about a village or a town, you know, why not think mm. of a village or a town as a process? So what is it yeah. about cities that demands we think of them as processes? <laughs> that, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I actually would, would agree in that, in that you can, um, so sure, you can think of, of smaller um, entities like, like villages as, as processes as well. But I think it was, um, I mean, what, what one answer is is just a, a pragmatic one that, that I, I teach cities. <laughs> you know, that's my that's my uh, my business, and and um, it, it was uh, I wanted uh, to get away from these um, sort of intuitive or, or, or traditional ways of thinking about them, partly because my my own context, my academic uh, work context, is is one that that you know is very wrapped up with those those questions so the i mean that's a that's a pragmatic um answer to it but i think um more specifically i, I think there is um i felt that there was a need for a a, a reassertion of a, a of a tradition of thinking about cities um that, that assumed that they were dynamic and that they were changing and that they weren't about uh, you know, fixed um, things, um, and it's a it's a tr- tradition that this you, you can't pin down to a particular um, discipline, particular academic discipline. But it draws on anthropology. There are certain um, architectural theorists that have been interested in it, um, and and it's a you know there's a venerable tradition. I mean, the pe- people I'm thinking of are, are um, well, I mean, say anybody from from Claude Levi Strauss talking about Brazil in the 1930s to to um, I mean, Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown talking about Las Vegas in the 1970s and, and um, uh, you know, trying to understand what what's going on there in, in its own terms. And there's people like Stuart Brand, you know, um, a great uh, sort of maverick um, engineer, um, theorist, uh, computer engineer, um, you know, thinking about how, how buildings learn. And I think all of these people were... were um, uh, in, in different ways, uh, imagining that that um, cities are are um, inherently dynamic. That there's something uh, kind of inherently uh, just just wrong or, or false to, to to try to imagine them as as, as fixed or static um, entities. And I, I wanted to to reassert that it's um you know partly uh, as a reaction against uh, I suppose the you know, spectacularizing um, tendencies in, in contemporary cities, and the, this this uh, overreaching desire to to create um, brands or, or images, but but also just to, to to reassert this this tradition, which is often, I mean, to my mind, a, a basically progressive um, tradition. So, it, it, it's yeah, yeah. Go on. Well, it's in, so it's interesting you cast it as reassertion of a tradition because what mm. struck me reading. The book was um, particularly the beginning where you talk about um, you set up the case for understanding cities as processes mm. by re- referring to a meeting with um, the great Brazilian architect Oscar Niemeyer in yeah, 2001. Yeah. <laughs> and you say when you met him um, and you say like he gives, he kind of gave you the spiel that he gave to everyone, whereby mm. he makes it seem as if the city or the buildings that make up the city spring effortlessly from his um from this uh, kind of from his yes, he says, uh, that's right. Yes, I pick up a pen and a draw a building appears. It's something like that. You know, he, he yeah, he always would it's say that, that easy. Yeah. This Promethean, <laughs> this Promethean creative yeah. process, 
And I yeah. suppose what so what struck me thinking about it, I suppose a bit was, and this ties into some of the themes uh, that we talk about regularly on the podcast, mm. is how far um, you know how far the thinking of cities as processes as mutable partly speaks also to the fact it's not something which is something which is specific to our era that um you know we th- the globalized city is a city of um of constant motion mm. of um capital and labor and tourism and so on and they're all circulating and they're supposed to be kind of dynamic and in flux mm. and changing in and that goes against the image of the heroic um promethean architect and designer and urban planner of the past and mm. so i wonder if this notion of uh, of cities as processes is also um, more than a tradition, I suppose, of thinking, but specific to our era, that it's appropriate for our era, given the way in which we conceive of cities, and perhaps mm. given the fact that we're not so enamored of um, people like Oscar Niemeyer, of the great kind of modernist visionary imposing mm. their will on the city. Mm. No, I mean, this is, it, it's complex, isn't it? Because, I mean, so, sometimes it, it seems uh, like um, the, the, the the idea of, of cities as as process you know is is really uh you know it it, it reiterates the the processes of, of capital let, let's say but um i think what, what i was interested in um say when you, you picked Nehemiah as, as an example um was I, I think actually although he you know he was a li- lifelong communist and and uh, you know you, you know the you, you know the history but he he um uh in a way what he was doing um was uh, almost in, in um, you know, was really very similar to, to the way that architects or star architects, and those are sometimes called, uh, have operated in the last um, 20 years or so in the, in the way that, that uh, it's become in, incredibly important to produce um, brands for, for cities or, you know, in, images that can be put in circulation. So, I mean, to, to my mind, there's something about uh, the, the the creation of of or the the heroic idea of the architect, which is is completely uh, in, um, in line with the way that, that that capital functions. I mean, capital or the global city needs the, these heroic um, architects. And although you know clearly uh, there, there is also this sort of um, the particular set of myths around the city as something dynamic and changing. I mean, it's it's complicated. Let, let's say that. I, I did, but just to go back to this this idea of of um, uh, of thinking about process may, maybe being um, uh, an intellectual tradition. I mean, what I'm interested in there is that the idea that the city might be a collective um, thing. Uh, I mean, perhaps a, a unconsciously collective, but but something in, in which there, there are many actors and, and in which our outcomes are not necessarily um, easy to uh to to predict or or um that that in a sense you know everybody in 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 a different way is maybe a, an architect and I, I do sort of feel that a little bit and that you, you um it, it's important to try and account for 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 everybody in 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 a, in a city not not just a few heroic individuals so i certainly want to get away from that um well, I think we should, uh, we should maybe move to uh, hmm. to I guess the, those who see themselves as heroic individuals, um, especially uh, those in in big finance, because that's that's hmm. the first theme you start with, and the thing that hmm. I think when you think about global cities today, uh, finance is is the predominant question there. So uh, yeah. you start with money, um, and because you know that you know previously 
cities, especially sort of the imperial city, was about political power and the buildings of political power mm. were the things that kind of dominated the skyline or the central square. Uh, mm. And now the kind of the real motive factor seems to be finance and everything that kind of flows and depends on that, um, including kind of creativity and, and the creative sector and mm. tech, which uh, we'll come to a little bit later on. Um, but one thing that you point out uh, near the start is how a lot of global cities look like, I mean, I think, I don't know if you use this term, but you know, they're effectively piggy banks in the sky. It's people yes, working money, yeah, yeah. especially mm. people from very rich individuals uh, who perhaps are, you know, can't find a safe place for their money where they are, whether, you know, Russia or China, and they park their money in posh high-rise residential blocks. Um, so you could tell us a little bit about this process, maybe kind of if you can, you know, illustrate it uh, mm. with, with some examples. Yeah, I mean, I, I became more and more interested in this because I, although uh, global cities have, have always built um, big buildings, there's always been uh, this this function of them being um, something like safety deposit boxes or you know places to to, to park money. Um, that that process seemed to have been really exacerbated in, in the last um, well decade, really, and and it started to produce these really extraordinary forms. So with the particular example. Um, that, that 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 got me thinking about it was a building by uh, Rafael Vignoli, the, who's, a, who's a Uruguayan architect, um, and b- built a lot for for uh, I suppose uh, what we might call high net worth individuals or you know re- really um, serious investors. Um, and his uh, building, eight three two Park Avenue in in New York, is is this pencil thin skyscraper, and probably the first of a um, a trend to to super tall, super thin skyscrapers in that city, which has, has started to spread else uh, elsewhere, and it, it's an incredibly striking looking building. It, it's like um like like a a, a piece of uh, of, of extruded um, graph paper that that goes up to about I think eighty eighty or eighty five um, stories. It is unbelievably thin, and there, there are technological things that have happened. Um, there are ways of stabilizing buildings and dealing with downdrafts and so on that have made it possible to build with, with um, so high on, on such a reduced um, floor um, plate. But what, what was fascinating about that, apart from just, just the form, which was, I mean, to my mind, it was unprecedented, um, it was the idea that it didn't really need to be occupied. I mean, it just needed to be sold <laughs> so um the the developers were were quite clear about this that they they did not expect the building really to be occupied by human beings so you know say 80 plus stories of apartments um you know it's each one starting at several million uh, dollars the most expensive one was you know the order 100 million dollars um that the, it, it didn't matter as far as they were concerned. They just needed to sell the apartments. And they, they, they were thinking that at, at any one time, there would maybe be 20% of the building would actually be occupied. So this is a remarkable thing to happen. It was happening all, all the way around. You know, uh, it, it has now really um, exploded as a tendency around Midtown in, in New York. And, and, you know, the result is you have the, the most spectacular parts of the skyline are, are buildings which are essentially not occupied by human beings. I mean, that, <laughs> and yet, you know, because the purpose is really just stacking up money, they, they are completely functional. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I just found that um, 
you know, really curious and, and interesting. And, and, and the, empty, it, it, the emptiness is interesting as well, because I mean, I think yes, probably most yeah. people's experience of the, you know, homogenized and sanitized global city, especially the kind of urban centers, mm. is that they're often um, kind of have a weird feeling of emptiness in many places. Mm. Um, and they're all yeah. kind of surveyed and controlled. And I, this adds to the emptiness, doesn't it? These high rise blocks, which yeah. are not meant to be filled with humans. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, and I actually, I think to, to be, um, to, to be honest, thinking about it now, I maybe first started thinking about that in, in Sao Paulo, where, where the, you know, I, I you know, never lived there, but I, you know, visited uh, often enough, as you, as you know, and the, the, um, you know, I felt that, uh, the, there were areas of the, um, you know, just off, um, uh, Paulista, I mean, say, uh, you know, the various bits of uh, jardines where the, the, um, the, the density, the apparent density, was was very high, but but actually the the the, the level of occupation was quite low, and it, and it, it's a slightly different phenomenon there. They're more um, historic uh, buildings, but there was something about the the city being you know apparently very dense, but actually not not really being occupied in in quite the way that you would expect. <laughs> um, so I I think uh, I've been conscious of this for a while. Then I you know started to realize that there's a lot of new development in global cities is is something where o- occupation is neither here nor there. You know, it, it's really about stacking up money. Yeah, and it, and it seems that that process has accelerated since the global financial crisis. I mean, I think uh, mm. I noted mm. it very much in when I lived in, I was living in London at the time. Uh, yeah. Throughout the kind of the first half of the of the twenty tens, and uh, that that's a process which I guess that accelerated financialization and and the power of finance became even greater right after the crisis, right? Which mm. was driven by uh, a crash based on on property initially. So I mean, yep, yep, yep. There's a certain kind of irony there, and you, you think you know when you just mm. when you you hear someone de- depicting the fact that you've got these empty skyscrapers just being built to park money you think well that's got to crumble at some point that that cannot be sustainable mm. and and uh mm. of course that we've already witnessed that we've already witnessed the unsustainability of it and that ca- already did come mm. crashing down and it only accelerated the same process mm. Mm. yeah well i mean it remains to be seen what what happens exactly i mean i, I there's um we have become more and more conscious of this this thing and that it is uh you know, it's tempting to see it everywhere, and you know, increasingly, you you know, you, you do tend to almost expect new developments to be empty. But I, I'm also conscious of the fact that the, this process is very uneven. So it's really, it's something you see in 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 the most, uh, I suppose, financialized um, capitals. You know, it's. I mean, New York really has it um, big time. Uh, London has it big time, although the, the form of the buildings is, is different. Uh, but not, not everywhere has it exactly. It well, seems to be something that that happens right at the top of the, the market. As yeah. Were. Well, let's talk about the form of, of the buildings in London, actually, because uh, as a way mm. of maybe being a little bit more illustrative for, for our listeners, uh, maybe mm. a building they'll know, and we're going to try to include uh, images of uh, some of these buildings for, for patrons anyway uh on on our patron um and if you're not signed up uh, listener it's patreon.com slash bungacast gotta uh, always be selling very much like the global city uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, always always be closing always and, be closing uh, exactly yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. um yeah. so uh, one building which i particularly hate and i like to see that it got a little section in the book uh is the walkie-talkie building in, <laughs> um, yeah. which yeah. it looks like a kind of cartoonish walkie-talkie where 
there. It's larger mm. at the top than at the bottom. It's got this concave uh, glass front, which famously, mm. I remember this being in the news when, when I lived in London, it melted a car. It meant, well, it melted the paint off a car, which was parked in front of it because of its concave front. Uh, it condensed yep. all the light beams <laughs> and shot it back, which no. seemed to kind of capture something about it, about finance, mm. maybe aggressively melting its surroundings. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, I raise that as just one example. There's various others in London which have kind of, again, slightly cartoonish names uh, mm. based on their appearance, the cheese grater, the gherkin and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. And all these buildings which have sprung up in the past 20 years have completely changed London's skyline. I mean, arguably, mm. it's given it a skyline where it didn't have one properly yes, before. Yes. Um, what, yeah. what's, what's driven that? I mean, if you could explain what's driven this drive for having these iconic buildings yeah, well, it's, it's a good question. I think it's um, it's a slightly different process to to the one we were just describing in in New York. I mean, this is a it's a definitely a global tendency. It's definitely about um, producing icons, um, and in 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 a very large um, financial capital like like London, it, it's really about branding uh, different. Um, uh, different different properties or you know different um things that you can then uh then pitch in in the market so the uh in a in a place like that i mean but it's uh it's important to have something that differentiates you from your neighbors (laughs) um these these buildings uh all all have very distinctive forms They, they work very hard to um distinguish themselves from their their surroundings and their immediate neighbors and it means that they they can pitch themselves in the market and and uh uh, you know, sell sell floor space. I mean, it, it's um, re- really as simple as that. I think um, the um, the walkie-talkie. Just to, to come back to that. I mean, I uh, I have a sneaking uh, admiration for it. I have to say, I, I think it it really is unbelievably um, ugly, but it's almost so <laughs> ugly that it's fascinating. And and I I um, uh, you know, almost everything about it is wrong, and I, I find I, I keep returning to it. And, and it, it, one of the things that, that I really I actually kind of like about it is that it's almost impossible to photograph. You know, it's it's um, and I take a lot of pictures of buildings, and this is one that's a real challenge. I find myself kind of returning to it, but it, it's the conceit there is uh, yeah, it's quite quite a funny one. It, it, it's um, that the uh it, it's you can get more money for floor plates higher up you know people want to have a view and therefore you should build more floor plates higher up <laughs> so so it has this this weird form where it is literally bigger at the top than it is at the at the bottom um and then yeah there's this this story about melting the car i mean the the weird thing is uh i don't know how they didn't work this out but the concave face is almost exactly like a solar furnace, you know, a solar furnace is a kind of power station, um, which they, they were very keen on in the south of France for a while. And it, it's deliberate, you know, it's a form that, that is about concentrating a beam of light and then you can you can, you can uh, make energy out of it. So, I mean, we, we how just, they didn't realize that. Yeah. We, we it's just bizarre, isn't it? Sorry, we, we recorded a, a recent episode on on uh, J.G. Ballard, which, which came out uh, oh last week and uh, I, I just think Ballard probably would have appreciated that a building which which kind of melts melts its surroundings I think fantastic now he would have loved it yeah absolutely loved it so there, there is some um, there is something about that and I, you know, I have to say you know with lots of these these stories you know we, we're dealing with 
with forms that, that you know, when they appear, they, they may be produced by the most, um, you know, aggressive forms of capitalism or whatever. But there's a real fascination in seeing what happens, you know, when they're out in the world, you know, how do, how do they, you know, uh, it's the, 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 um, the unexpected is always very interesting. Um. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic story, actually, that one. We should move on uh, to talk about power. Um, as I already mm. said, you know, power is not the, and as you put in the book, it's not the the primary or the, the initial starting point, I guess, for the global city just because of the role mm. of finance. But power is very interesting in the way that power is, is depicted mm. um, because of yeah. uh, the way that it, it kind of tries to deny itself. It denies its own authority. So um, I, I you have this bit about the uh, transparent Greater London Authority building. Mm. Um, picking London examples, I think, just by chance, maybe it's because I'm familiar uh, with them. But again, we'll, we'll try to include images of all these uh, for listeners mm. so they can have a, a reference point. Um, but that's one where it seems to, you know, it, it's not power. Uh, it, it makes a sort of different sort of statement to what uh, Washington, D.C. and its Great Mall does, which is the example that you start with that in that mm. chapter. Um, what how, how do you understand the changing nature of power and as it's represented architecturally? Mm, it's, um, well, the first thing I would say, actually, is, is that uh, I, I had an interesting discussion about power um, in, a, in a talk recently, about a couple of weeks ago, I think in um, York in the sociology department there. We, we, we talked a lot about power. And the, the, actually, I, you know, I, I, I realized I probably could have organized the, the the entire book around power. In fact, what I'm describing are, are the, the what I've called processes are, are actually different forms of power. You know, we could we could talk about talk about it in those terms. Anyway, power is is definitely interesting. I I um w- was uh, I suppose draw, drawn to the idea that that it was one of the key things that had changed in the global city. So if you're you're looking at, at, at the, what what defines global cities now as opposed to you know, a few decades ago it, it would be um the, it, you know very significantly the the way that um political power or authority um presents itself and and i i got more and more interested in in the way that it, it seemed to want to be reticent uh, that there was really no um no hope uh, or uh, possibility of, of a global city um, b- building, uh, you know, a great, you know, authoritarian mole like like Washington or Brasilia or, or um, Chandigarh or, or something like that. It, it's uh, no, I mean, power is going to be represented in, in, in ways that would be apparently uh, much friendlier, much more open, more transparent. You know, all, all of this stuff. Um, but all of these things seem to be <laughs> to be uh, to be lies in a way, or, or maybe that's putting it too strongly. But they they were very. Um, uh, they seem to be um, presenting a, a a face of of political power that in in fact was was denying the 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 you know, continuing fact of it, and so. I I, um, I spent quite a lot of time on the Scottish Parliament, where simply um, you know because it's here, but it's it's also uh, a building that was very much discussed when when it was put up and and opened, and and seemed to be really much bigger than uh, than than just a, a, 
a parliament for for a, an incipient independent uh, polity in, in in the northwest corner of uh, of Europe. I mean, it, it is much bigger than that, and and it's a building that that um, you know presents so many contradictory and and you know overlapping and and uh, opaque and sometimes transparent and you know different ideas of power that it sort of ends up <laughs> not really meaning anything. I mean, I have to say, I hate it. I mean, I, it's um. The, the it's a building that uh, costs an astonishing amount of money, but it, it was also um, it, it sort of represents a very confused um, process and a very confused understanding of what power actually is, and ultimately a, a dishonest uh, uh, um, understanding of power. You know, I, I, I and yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I think that yeah. I think that dishonesty is probably what comes through most strongly. And, and yeah. thinking about other uh, sites of power, uh, none of them are particularly friendly or welcoming and it's, mm. it's probably absurd even to, to kind of try to think that you could make a, a palace of power of, yeah. of the national executive or even a local executive and try to and try to make it friendly and welcoming and it, it needs to make a yeah. statement and the fact that mm. uh, especially these British examples seem to want to display only transparency, the abnegation of authority, mm. uh, dispersal of power, decentralization, mm. almost like we're not we're not really here. We're not really in charge. Which, yes. Which is that dishonest creates. It would help yeah. um, just for our listeners as well. Uh, could could you maybe elaborate a bit more, Richard, specifically how the how power is abnegated in buildings and maybe specifically in the Scottish Parliament? Um, how authority yeah. is kind of effaced in the design of the building? Mm. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's, no, that's a, it's a good question. I mean, basically, if you if you haven't seen the Scottish Parliament, it's uh, first of all, it's almost impossible to describe because it it, it has so many different elements uh, to it. But it, it's a, a kind of sprawling campus uh, complex. It, it's right at the uh, at the edge of the central city and, and and at the edge of Holyrood Park, which is this big royal park with with um, uh, an extinct volcano in it. So it's actually a spectacular natural landscape. And, and a large part of the building um, literally kind of dissolves into the landscape. And there's a, there's a big effort in, in the building to, to try to make it um, dissolve, you know, and, and to try and deny it. It's, uh, you know, the, the fact of it being this this big campus of, you know, however, however many um, you know, tens of thousands of square meters. It is. I mean, it's a big, um, a big entity. But they try and make it look small, <laughs> and they try and make it look friendly, and they try and make it look um, transparent in in various places. Um, and I, I think it's uh, my, um, you know, feelings about it as a, a dishonest thing are, are that that it 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 doesn't uh, it doesn't kind of ad- admit to the the authority that it actually has, or it tries to be something that it's not. Um, and it, you know, it tries to be, uh, um, yeah. I, I, I think it, it's a function of, of uh, you know, the rather confused um, condition of, of politics here, anyway, which, which is, uh, uh, you know, it's sending sending out lots of um, mixed messages. Um, and then, sort of related to that, I think the um, there's definitely been moves in in various. Uh, um, Various places like like the UK, but you know, all all, all over the um, uh, the, the most in, industrialized parts of the world, where where to to di- dissolve or, or disperse power, and and that's partly financially driven, um, but it, it, it's partly all, almost um, a, a squeamishness about about power. And my, my I I'm kind of uncomfortable with it in um, 
in that I, I want to know where power is exactly. <laughs> I'd rather have more overt images of it. So I, you know, I'm I'm very much in the um, in the Brasilia mold. You know, build build a big mold with big buildings. You know, let's stop messing about. You know. But it, you know, it and may you also be see, a function you can of see power literally being contested. Yeah, in those molds. Yes, I, protests in Brasilia uh, or yeah. in Washington D.C. for that matter. Yeah, vis- vis- visibly capture that. Yes, exactly. You know, I mean, I still, uh, you know, I'm still nostalgic for that sort of thing. I suppose also there is a sense, uh, you know, you know, very real sense that the the political power or or, or you know, neo political power, in fact, is is concentrated in lots of places that that can't be represented in buildings anymore. So perhaps it's you know it's on the web or it's you know it's it's in uh, server farms in Silicon Valley or, or whatever. So perhaps the the, um, the the dissolution of overt symbols of power is actually realistic. You know, it, it's a, a realistic representation mm-hmm. of um, what what's actually happening. But you know that I, I didn't even go there. But you know that that's another possible story. But, that's, but so, certainly there's yeah. there's a yeah. I mean, certainly that there's a reticence about making images of power, and that 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 is very interesting and, and characteristic at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that desire to say we're not really here, I think, yeah. uh, has its correlate very much in, especially in the the kind of end of history period of globalization of saying we're mm. just here to uh, serve the needs of global capital to make sure that the market yeah. functions smoothly. Uh, we're not really making any decisions. Uh, we're just keeping yeah. the ship on an even keel. And the architecture seems mm. to kind of replicate or, or represent that. Um, but one aspect mm. uh, of power, which I did find interesting and something that is constantly present in, in our lives is bureaucracy. And so mm. you uh, have this bit about Brussels, which uh, yeah. was one of the highlights of the book. I found it fascinating um, because like, I guess, like the Scottish executive, the EU also has trouble saying exactly what it is because it yeah. also somehow did, disguises its own power um, and has many different conflicting tendencies. It's also a way of um, national elites evading responsibility, evading representation at the national level and and going on doing their things in Brussels. Uh, And as a consequence, the architecture of the place uh, somehow seems to, you know, that's one case where you don't really have many iconic buildings amongst in, mm. in the European quarter. So maybe tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, the bureaucratic architecture of Brussels. Yeah, I mean, Br- Brussels is, is such an interesting case. And it, it's a city I, I know a little bit. I mean, not not as well as I would like, but it, very, very interesting um, case. And I, I think um, I, I drew on the, the work of a number of um scholars who who you know are based in in brussels i've got to know quite well and they uh drew my attention to the fact that um the the way that that, that brussels or the, the way that the, the eu re- represented itself it was often through uh, pragmatism and accident and the, the functions of real estate markets and 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 at almost every step that there was a there was a, a reticence about projecting power or projecting what what it actually was, and so so the the um, uh, the, the result was the, the accumulation or, or, or accretion of this this uh, enormous um, physical bureaucracy and re- re- smart um, re- uh, real estate uh, people put, putting up buildings in anticipation of the of the of the EU requiring um, space and it's. Uh, and then also buildings like I think the the, um, the the Parliament building itself I think was originally designed as a shopping mall and then it's only sort of later on and you know quite very late in the design process that it actually becomes a 
um, becomes the parliament building. So a very sort of odd, backwards um, process. Um, so, yeah, it's a very, very much a city um, driven by uh, uh, kind of rather o- opaque um, bureaucratic processes, but that then uh, which really form the the um, uh, a large part of the floor space of the city. I mean, I think well, you know, one thing that's definitely worth noting um, about Brussels is is the, the sheer scale of these buildings, and that that it's a small city, smallish city. I mean, it's bigger than Edinburgh, but not you know, it, it's a, a small city on global terms. And yet, you know, the, the, it's almost like the average building is about you know fifty. 50,000 square meters in, in floor space, which is huge for for, that, for a city of that size. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think it's a really fascinating um, case, and it, it's almost it's a it's a, a global capital that that has emerged by by accident. The built environment is a very good representation of that. Excellent. Uh, so let's move on from power to some of the other themes that you discuss in the book, and one of them is is sex, which is probably the one which is. Uh, I guess anyone listening to this might be the most opaque in terms of trying to think of how the process of sex yeah. uh, impacts a city. Uh, I wanted to highlight one, which is probably the most, um, I guess, perhaps the, the, the one which is most immediately identifiable if you've spent any time mm. in any global city, which is uh, the, the investment in the production of, of gay zones, I suppose. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and the thing that you note that city managers or planners um, have took the existence of sexual diversity to be a cause of globalness. Um, so could you maybe mm. spell out what the, what that exactly means? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, it's one of the most distinctive things that that has happened actually in in, in global cities. Um, one of the in a way sort of weirdest things to have happened, or, or the I mean, not I mean, not not. Uh, just simply in in in, the, in its unexpectedness and and you know how how important it has become in 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 the way that cities present themselves. I, I got very interested in this question um, in the nineteen nineties, early nineties. So I, I was uh, having li- lived all over the place. I, I ended up back in in the the city I originally grew up in, Ma- Manchester, uh, which uh, at that point had. Um, this uh you know this this remarkable new phenomenon newish phenomenon of the the, the so-called gay village and it, you know there always had been a a really important queer um subculture in in, in the city but very furtive very much uh, something in in the in the shadows and the back streets and, and whatever but you know here, here 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 i was back in the city and and uh suddenly in the in the context i was in uh I actually, uh, you know, a, a huge amount of of um, social life seemed to happen there. I mean, not not just uh, not just for people involved in the scene, but just for for young people uh, in general. So, in fact, I I did a lot of um, socialising down down on Canal Street, um, you know, along with a lot of my my colleagues who were doing PhDs at the time. So, I got got very interested in it, and and it became uh, a um, I started to see, uh, you know, not just how this was about um about i don't know emerging tolerance of sexual diversity but it was intimately connected with with real estate development i mean it was inseparable from it (laughs) uh so uh once um, canal street had really got going then uh, developers started to move in uh you know land became more expensive um suddenly you, you started to get a very 
self-conscious um, design processes happening. So there was a, I remember, a, you know, a, we started to see um, loft redevelopments for the for the first time, and you know, suddenly it was like like you had. Um, you know, New York came to town. It was um, it was it was really remarkable, and you know, you could see that in in, in the functioning of of um, residential property markets and 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 so on. And you know, suddenly there were there was there was life in places that, that where there wasn't before. So 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 there was that, and I and it so it was. Um, and then I I you know thought about that in relation to to other places, and I you know cited. Um, you know what had happened in in New York in the 1970s, where that, you know, that it, it's very marked and very well documented, and a very powerful driver of of um, d- development in certain parts of Manhattan. And then, you know, there's San Francisco, Sao Paulo. You know, you can you can talk about it there. Um, but it seemed to be, I mean, as you say, you know, it, it's a very important marker of of globalness. And it, and it, it's not just me, you know, saying that. I mean, obviously. Uh, it, it's something that has been remarked on, uh, you know, for or, or really um, made a, a lot of by um, people like like Richard Florida, who, um, you know, I mean, for all, you know, Florida has has had um, for all sorts of good reasons, all all kinds of um, criticism, but he 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 was. Um, Know, quite astute to to notice that that kind of connection uh, and the way that uh, um, globalness could be signified through sexual diversity and and um, it yeah it, it's um there, there is something there it, it was um, I mean I thought about sex in different ways <laughs> partly you know, I like to think about sex but the, it's um, who doesn't but the the uh, it, it was particularly that um, the, the this you know emergence of of gay zones or gay villages and queer identity that seemed to be the most dynamic um, area I was much more interested in that than, than in in uh, you know traditional things like uh, you know the the sex industry you know, however you define that you know traditional you know prostitution markets or that sort of thing I, I, I wasn't going to talk about that it was more the, it's what's uh, visible, uh, you know, official, open. What it was those things. Yeah, and what yeah, what's marketed? Because I, I think yes. this is also mm. part of a, a wider story about the adoption, the co-option of alternative and alternative cultures uh, to to sell the global city. In under the heading of work, uh, you talk about the creative. Mm the creative as the the central figure of the global city um and mm. you know listeners can probably already imagine the cliches you know it's the macbook mm. and the, ca- the coffee and the ex-industrial space mm. um one interesting mm. thing uh, in talking about amsterdam uh you depict about uh you depict how squatters in the 1970s uh were the the originators of, of this sort of Mm. Uh, well, both of the aesthetic as well as the use of that industrial space, and it was very much in opposition to the state. Uh, today, yep. it's the state using that uh, that sort of those modes, those practices uh, as a way of of selling the global city. Um, so, for me, this reminded me a lot about uh, something that we talked about in our uh, Californian ideology series, which we did last year. Um, but but that basically that you can have your cake and eat it, that you can have mm. economic growth and you can also be creative. Um, so, mm. I mean, do global cities believe that they can have their cake and eat it, I guess? <laughs> well, they, yes, they absolutely do. I mean, whether they can <laughs> is, is something right. else in, yeah. entirely. I mean, I, I, I think this is a, it's a very interesting area. I, I mean, just as um, a kind of anecdote, I mean, I, the, the book, um, it, it sort of came out of a, an aborted earlier project where I, I was going to write a book called The Creative City. And I, I, I realized 
I, I absolutely hated the concept. And it was like, <laughs> um, the more I re researched it, the, 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 the less I, I really wanted to be around it at all. But there's, there's a residual um, uh, fascination uh, with it. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's certainly been one of the big drivers in, in the in changes to, to the physical form of the global city. And the, it's uh, you know, sometimes more visible in interiors and patterns of consumption and what people are you know, looking like and wearing and how they're, they're behaving in the city. But it, it's, um, it, it has produced a, a very remarkable set of changes. I think we've become very conscious now this is very recently, so last five, six years or so, very conscious of, of this uh, this idea of creative work being, being something uh, also very controlling and, and productive of, of um, some, some terrible forms of self-discipline, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, very gratifyingly, we've got some good uh, cultural forms that have dealt with that. As a problem, so I, I, I must say I, I, I liked um, Dave Egger's um, book, um, The Circle, and I also liked the film that was based on it, which is a you know, the whole thing's a satire on Facebook or, or Google, um, and and you know it's 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 good. I I, I did um, while we're on this, um, I, I did a, a visit to Google um, as as part of the research into the book, and in, in fact I, I I visited Google. You know, half a dozen times, I think, but I've only done one official visit to to the place, and uh, it was a terrible visit. I mean, in um, that that uh, the you know I, I knew the place uh, uh, outwardly pretty well, and I you know I'd spent time riding their bicycles and and you know was generally pretending to be a creative person. But the 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 um, the official visit. Uh, I was hoping to get a, an insight into the whole place, and uh, the the person we were assigned to look after us uh, took us around half a dozen buildings, but uh, and showed us you know, some iconic things like a slide that that, that has been there for for, for, for years. Um, but every question we asked, he, he he just couldn't give an answer. So it was it was repeatedly, "What are people doing in this building? You know, what what are they doing? What's the work they're doing?" So I can't tell you that. <laughs> so we we came away knowing, literally knowing less. Than we, than we had at the beginning. I'm, I'm imagining I mean, it was, a, a, a Gavin Belson figure from uh, the, yes. the TV show Silicon Valley, which I love that you referenced. <laughs> so I enjoyed that. But yeah, it's, yeah. that's who you imagine yeah. kind of giving you these non-answers. Yes, I mean it was it was terrible, and um, I, I felt that uh, I, I mean at the, uh, originally I'd had sort of um, notions of writing a book about Silicon Valley, and in the end I thought, well, the, you know, there's no way I'm ever going to get access to anything <laughs> here at all. So I think we, we've become. Um, very conscious, thankfully, of of uh, how um, how controlling these these organisations actually are, you know, and how um, they, you know, there's this this tension between the the outward uh, rhetoric of of uh, freedom and and uh, you know everybody's everybody's uh, in in this for their own benefit and, and whatever, and, and uh, uh, tension between that and the the the, the actual um, controlling and authoritarian nature of the places. We've we become very conscious of that, which is a, is a good thing, I think. I was wondering if you knew about the work of the, oh, I'm sure you do, but I wondered if you connected it at all um, to your own um, projects, was um, the work of the French geographer Christophe Guilly. 
Um, so we had him, uh, well, we didn't have him on, but we talked about his book back in episode 104. And he made, um, he made, he said something in the way he characterizes modern cities in um, Europe struck me very similar to a process that you describe in, mm. in your book, where you talk about the process by which it's flipped over. So, um, or cities have kind of turned inside out. So, um, in the middle of the 20th century to the, uh, towards the end, towards the last quarter of it or so, uh, cities hollowed out and the, or only the kind of the poor urban cores were left as people, um, went out into the suburbs and cities expanded and the population shrank. And you say in the last kind of third or the last, um, the last 30 years or so, um, it's flipped over. And that cities have now become more compact, more dense, um, and that they're popular. the poor poor have been shifted to the um, outskirts of the city, whereas the core of the city has become these dense urban zones in which wealth is concentrated. And that sounds very similar to um, what Guy calls as uh, citadels. Um, and where he talks about how the um, he talks about how they become these kind of concentrated centers of power. So that you get, uh, which also control the movement of people in and out of the cities so mm. that uh, you end up kind of with congestion, uh, congestion, uh, charge, congestion zone charges as one way of um, controlling flows in and out of the cities of poor workers who come from peri-urban or ex-urban areas to um, to track into the center. They need to work in the center, but they can't live in the center. And this being one of those processes that's reshaping cities. And it just struck me as very similar to some of the processes you were talking about. So I wondered, I kind of set it up in a rather long-winded way, and it was actually <laughs> a different episode from what I said. It was 102, mm. not 104. But I yeah. wonder if the citad the image of the Citadel, how far that would fit with some of the processes you're describing. Yeah, no, what, what a great image. I mean, I, it's... Um... I, I think that's that's absolutely uh, right. I think the, the I, I mean, I, part of the the reason for writing the the book in in the first place was to 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 recover some of the the, the wonder really at that that happening at all. I mean, I, I don't. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm. I, I think there's all sorts of things that we we need to be um, concerned about with that happening. But it is, you know, it's a very remarkable kind of flipping that that's happened in thirty years. Um, there is another. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking of um, a book by an American journalist called Alan Ehrenholtz, which is called The Great Inversion. And it, it describes the, a, a similar uh, kind of flipping or, you know, inversion is a very good term for it. But I like this this idea of the citadel. Um, yeah. And and I think you you um, in, in architectural terms uh, that that has become, uh, you know, really quite um quite marked as a as a transformation i mean in in the uk i mean i the uk has has, has been through such a such a transformation in those those terms in in 30 years and and in in that that the idea of it uh being a citadel would, would work very well in a place like like manchester actually you know where we started with this the, the gay village and everything um and it, it's in the process at the moment of building a, a a wall almost a hong kong style wall of of skyscrapers there's about 25 of them i think going up and it, it will basically, you know, wall off the, the centre of the city from the the, the poor um, suburbs, and it, it's a it's a very physical um, image of of something like that. And yeah, the 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 density, the the, the inevitable surveillance and control that goes on in in buildings of you know very large scale. Uh, it's a, it's of a very different order to to uh, more human scale cities of the past. 
So one thing is um, talking about citadels or kind of um, talking about citadels is the question of uh, defense or how cities have to be defended. And one thing, another thing that's striking, I suppose, recently at least, is that you don't really get the um, uh, the hot war in Ooh. urban cities the way in which um, the way perhaps in which we did in the earlier parts of the 20th century. I mean, the closest Ooh. I think. Uh, the biggest urban battle in recent times was um, the attempt by the co- by the Iraqi state and its allies mm. to expel ISIS from Mosul. Um, mm. But generally, apart from that, we get more blurred conditions of security in these global mm. cities where you have nominal peace. Um, there isn't any actual uh, kind of legal status of war, but the peace disguises conditions that are actually extremely violent and disturbed and the most of, I mean, uh, you know, kind of, I suppose, um, uh, places such as in South America, perhaps, or in Mexico, well, Mexico in particular, but also oh, perhaps in oh. closer to Alex, uh, the favelas in Rio, in which oh. you have, uh, which you have peace disguising conditions, which are actually quite warlike, but even oh. in places which are less explicitly violent, say in, um, uh, in Europe and in uh, North America, you also have the war on terror, which mm. extensive systems of surveillance and so on. So the question is, how did war become part of everyday life in the global city? <laughs> well, it, yes, that's it's a PhD thesis, isn't it? I mean, um, I, I, I got I got very interested in this this uh, question. I mean, not, not that I felt in the end I had any very easy answers, but I I, I think that I mean, you, you put it very well. There's there's a there's a, in uh, global cities, at least in the rich world, I mean, there there is very little sense, or there has been very little sense in this, you know, past generation, of of the likelihood of a of a hot war. You know, that that seemed to be a big change from from uh, you know thirty forty years ago. Certainly, a big change from my childhood when the, the fear of nuclear war was absolutely real. You know, anybody who grew up in the nineteen seventies will will have felt that. You know, viscerally. And you, you you would feel it because you uh, I mean in, you know if you're in a, a, a fairly uh, sort of militarized place like the UK you 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 know you would see things like like bombers flying overhead and, um, you know you were you were conscious of 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 the uh, of these these technologies that could um, could d- destroy everybody at any, at any point um, you know that's that's definitely changed but it, the um, as you say that the, the the, the, um, there, there, are, there are other aspects of everyday life that have become militarized in, in a more insidious way. And I, I felt, I mean, I mentioned this in the book, but I felt that, that one really um, powerful indicator of that was the way that, that BAE systems had, had um, steadily, o- over decades, transformed itself from uh, a, a, a company that basically made aeroplanes to a company that made much more amorphous defense systems and a lot of those systems were um, things that you might find in in airports so they 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 are involved in in producing scanners and technologies for uh, general surveillance and I, I think you know as, as much of their 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 activity is driven by by these these everyday kinds of of um uh, warfare, if you want to call it that, uh, than uh, than they are by you know big platforms like like submarines and and um, fighter planes. So I mean that that's that seemed to be an important shift, and and you know it's it's paralleled. 
by the 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 um, at least in 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 Europe, you know, the the, the relative disappearance of the, of the military from everyday life. I mean, it, I, the United States is a different situation. I mean, that, there's no no question about that. But certainly, lo- large parts of the world, the, the the military doesn't have the kind of presence that it that it used to. And in, in the UK, then the military is very much smaller than it than it used to be. You know, even in my lifetime. Uh, yeah, and they, they, these seem to be, you know, important processes that that, that have happened. And yet, you know, at the same time, uh, that it, it's definitely possible to argue that that bits of everyday life have become militarized or, or quasi-militarized, and we, we're we're used to levels of security and surveillance that that uh, would have been inconceivable um, um, a few decades ago. You know, even would at the you... height of the you know 1970s and a you know terror and and, uh, and all of that. Would it be fair to say it's um, it's worse now? I mean, uh, along similar lines, perhaps to what we were saying before, that if you had more explicit, um, you know, more explicit indications of military power, mm. it, it's easier to locate. It's more concentrated. Whereas when you have, mm. say, the normalisation of airport security-style systems mm. throughout modern cities, it becomes much more diffuse, more accepted, more part yeah. of everyday um, ordinary life in a way that would have been. Um, that would be strange and striking to people in earlier periods. Yeah, yeah. It's it, you know, is, is it worse? I don't know. I mean, yeah, yes, in some way. <laughs> you never know, do you? Because you know, but um, it, it it's certainly different, and and it certainly seems more pervasive. But then there are there are so many things which are part of our lives now, which, which were you know just not present you know, 30, 40 years ago. So the you know the internet. Um, I, but I, I think it's you know what we can certainly say is 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 something about the the, the lessening of o- overt military um, power and and but but it, it's it, the, the reemergence of, of it or the emergence of of um, uh, uh, you know power of that kind in in, in different forms. Um, yeah, it's it's a weird one. And then um, to to. Um, just say something about um you know places like where, where alex is is sitting i mean there um well you know i mean to, to be <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um i mean in in sao paulo I, I i um was was very interested in questions of violence there and it's certainly it has it's fluctuated the the, the degree of violence but but certainly um the the, the places like like that have have uh, you know had to deal with um, a basic level of of violence that that is um, you know very high and and in, in I sort of mentioned this in passing in the book but the you know their um, levels of violence that in, in in other situations might actually be classified as war <laughs> which is you know it's it's um, remarkable so certainly Mexico seems to be in that situation and yeah. then um, you know yeah, obviously it, we you know and it creates cities we know that are very much. That, Blocked off from mm. from themselves with uh, with high yeah. gates everywhere, um, which yeah. which seems to be in contrast to a city like London or New York, which seem much yeah. more open, but which also have yeah. many closed mm. off spaces. But perhaps for for mm. other reasons, um, yeah. So I hope I hope uh, up to this stage we've kind of given listeners a, a picture of what the sort of archetypal global city is. You know, it's a kind of big glass and steel bank headquarters, for example, uh, maybe a fancy glass fronted city hall 
communicating the idea of transparency, uh, a gay village, some hipster cafes with creatives working in them, <laughs> some anti-terror barricades and airport scanners. <laughs> and then the last thing, the, the last piece of the jigsaw is the, the exposed brick museum in a house mm. in a former factory. Um, mm. And one thing that you note in, in the book is the way that uh, industry or the image of industry has become crucial to the way culture promotes itself. And culture, mm. the culture industry, is probably the most typical postmodern, post-industrial sector of the economy. So why has the image of industry become so important to the way that culture promotes itself? Well, yeah, I mean, what, what a question. I mean, um, I, I don't know if I have a, a straight um, answer to that. It's um, it's a whole mixture of things, uh, and you know now the, the the stock of industrial buildings has largely been used up. But it is remarkable how how many um, of those buildings um, got got reused for cultural purposes, and how, how important that became as a as a trope or or, or an idea. Um, I think um, there is something about it. Uh, being useful as a, a signifier of the, the seriousness with which culture has become taken. So I think one of the the signifiers of globalness is 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 a, a, a big cultural sector, um, you, you might say, and that that um, saying that that's um, serious. One way one way that you can do that is is to locate it in buildings which are basically buildings that, that used to house work and that there, there is something about the, the these buildings um you know if they're former warehouses or in, in the case of Tate modern a power station or whatever there's a, something about that as a, a, a as a now rather kind of unconscious um, statement uh, uh, that, or it's, it's received un- unconsciously as a statement of seriousness and uh, a, a statement that that, that culture is is uh, any you know really you know important um, part of the the economy and I don't know I mean it's uh, it, it's hard to to um, absolutely explain it but I think we know one thing we can certainly say is that just how important culture has become in in the, the global city I mean and it's if, if anything it's my entry point into thinking about the whole question because my, my students are basically history of art students and they they uh, you know they're, they're interested in museums and culture and the things that that, that uh that fill museums um and and you know it turns out they they are very interested in this question but i mean it, it was and it seemed important to explain to them that this was not a a natural uh condition it wasn't something that had all, always existed but that it, it had gone through an, an amazing resurgence and, and that, that culture was now seen as a as a driver of, of uh economic growth it wasn't something that was just nice to have but it was a it was a productive part of the economy I mean, maybe that's it you know you 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 need you need images of culture that that look productive you know it's not just about consumption it's about uh, mm. producing wealth which again is it goes back to the having your cake and needing it that the, the mm. global city needs to be an economic driving force as well as uh, you know creative and artistic at the same time and it can you know mm. art can't stand uh, in any way in contrast uh, or, or in a critical stance with regard to the economy they're they're meant to be mm. uh, conjoined I guess in the global city mm. yeah yeah exactly um that it's uh you know I, I think we've all become more and more conscious of that 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 culture uh 
is 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 all about the bottom line these days. It's about you know what what role can it be can it play in in um, in in in, uh, in in being productive in in the economy. It, it doesn't doesn't just exist for its own on its own terms. I mean that that seems just inescapable at the moment. Um, uh, yeah. Right, so uh, to finish this discussion off, because I think uh, listeners will have a good picture of the global city, its processes, why they look the way they do, uh, and maybe we should talk a little bit about the future. Um, I, I said mm. at the beginning that the global city is really a product of globalization of the end of history period, mm. you know, the, the 90s and 2000s, uh, and, and indeed the 2010s. Um, and the Part of this process was the the rush to fill in, I guess, the donut city, you know, which had which had mm. become most the kind of slightly run down city of the seventies and eighties with a poor center and rich suburbs. Uh, things have almost reversed in a lot of most global cities, mm. with, you know, rising rents. I mean, everybody, wherever our listeners are listening to this, are, are familiar with this either where they live or near where they live. Um, so, I guess the one question is: Does this? I mean, has this maybe reached, have we reached peak global city? And uh, and then mm. secondly, does this mean that the action is going to start happening elsewhere um, in, in small and mid-sized cities or maybe on the peripheries of big cities, which are very unfashionable places or have been very unfashionable places for, uh, well, the best part of my adult life? Um, and so mm. are we going to get things interesting happening, not just maybe in art and in culture, but also maybe in protest and in politics? Um, you know, Phil made reference to Christophe uh, Guilly's book, uh, you know, mm. The Yellow Vests, which uh, pr- started protesting, you know, in small and mid-sized towns and, and, and peripheries mm. rather than in the, in the city center initially. So maybe, uh, maybe that's where we should be in terms of, you know, kind of urban space. Maybe that's where we should be looking in the future rather than the center of big global cities. Yeah, well, I, oh, I'm sure that's right. I mean, I mean, actually, you, you can say that that historically, you should always look at the periphery. You know, it's always what's going on on, uh, on the edges, sort of un, under the under the radar, as as it were. I mean, the, 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 it's always important. And you know, in, it, I mean, here's a you know very banal example, but you know, basically all of the interesting popular music um, uh, produced in, in um, you know, so the the anglophone world in the 1960s was was produced in suburbs. You know, I mean, is that ultimately yeah. commercialised in the centre of cities? But it was it was the product of of suburbs. You know, say, same in uh, you know where, where I grew up in the in the 1970s and 1980s. It was uh, you know incredibly rich in in producing alternative forms of culture. But I mean, all of that happened on the on the periphery. But but yeah, I mean, uh, it's um. In terms of uh, you know growth, uh, I mean actually for for a long period now the 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 most growth is is happening in in smaller and medium sized places. So we we should certainly pay attention to those. Um, in terms of uh, you know what what the the future of the, the global city is, have, have we reached peak global city? Um, <laughs> well, you, maybe uh, the the do seem to be some stats to in 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 the, the the most uh you know the richest of those cities to suggest that that population growth has has stopped or has has started to reverse and that that does seem to be the case in london i mean it you know if if that is true it it would not be very surprising because of the dreadful cost of of housing and you know there has to be some sort of um, correction. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's. I, I think uh, 
at the same time, you, you, you need to be cognizant of the fact that, that nobody really predicted the, the return of the city in, in quite the way that it, it happened. I mean, you know, you, you don't have to go back very far and, and, and everyone's, you know, everyone's predicting the end of the city. You know, well, why why do you have to live in cities if you've got um, uh, communications networks that mean you can live anywhere? And in fact, what we've seen is this massive concentration in, in cities, which is actually, you know, byproduct of the kind of technologies that we, we got. No, nobody predicted that, though. And so so we, we need to be wary of, of making predictions. But I, I would think we, we, we're surely due for a revival of interest in in, in peripheries and in, in suburbs in, in particular. I mean, I, I've got, um, you know, I, I've got real, real interest in, in suburbs. I, I never really do anything about it. But, I, you know, I think we, we should always be be cognizant of what, what's going on in, in ordinary places. And, uh you know, the the future is, is 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 bound to be driven by by things that are happening under the radar in ordinary places, and and no, nobody's really paying attention to them right now. Excellent stuff, and we're very happy to be to to well to host that sort of discussion in the future as well. Uh, we're always happy to be looking under the radar, so we'd love to have you back on maybe at some point to discuss suburbs and things <laughs> maybe at the edges of the radar. Uh, Richard, mm. thanks very much. Uh, the book well, thank again, you. is called yeah. Why Do Cities Look the Way They Do? Uh, it's out from Polity. Uh, I should say it's, a, it's actually a really great read. Um, it doesn't have the sort of airy and sometimes inflated rhetoric that some design and architecture writing has. It's, it's, a, it's a really genuinely enjoyable read. So I'd encourage listeners to pick up a copy. Richard, thanks again. Thank you.